the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hi, I'm Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening to the Town Hall Review Podcast, where we bring you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Our podcast is brought to you through partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy and ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom. Here's a piece I hope you will enjoy from my friend and colleague, Michael Medved. How long can it last when we're all, we are told, going to be replaced by machines? With artificial intelligence soaring, there's a new piece today about uh, the effectiveness of using AI, artificial intelligence, machines, robots, to even perform medical functions, to diagnose you, to figure out what's wrong, uh, to tell you which pills to take and what has to happen. What about performing surgery? Yeah, that's sort of high-end work. And what about more immediate questions, like the literally millions of Americans who right now make their living driving? Driving for Uber or for Lyft or as Teamsters? Driving long-haul truckers? Will the uh, much-anticipated self-driving cars eliminate all of those jobs? And what about more intimate connections? Of course, Hollywood is fascinated with the idea of replacing human beings by robots of various kinds. All of these are questions that are raised in an extraordinarily readable fashion by a a brand new book. It is called The Human Advantage, The Future of American Work in an Age of Smart Machines. Uh, That's uh, it's by bestselling author and economist Jay Richards, uh, who is also a, a fellow of Discovery Institute here in Seattle and a friend. Uh, Jay, great to see you again, and congratulations on the publication of this eagerly awaited book. Thanks so much, Michael. It's great to be with you in the studio. It's great to have you here, and uh, especially looking forward to the weekend. So uh, what what about uh, the the idea that this revolution in artificial intelligence is going to be devastating to American jobs? This is the worry. I mean, there have been 20 books in the last couple of years, and half of them say half the, po- half the population is going to be out of work. It's going to be a disaster. The government needs to give everybody a basic income. The other half of the books, unfortunately, say half the, the or all these societies going to be out of work, and it's going to be awesome because they're not going to have to work. Both of these, I think, are actually really dystopian visions. I think part of the story is right. I do think there's some serious disruption coming. The ways in which we do things right now, at least for many people, are going to change in the next 10 or 15 or 20 years. Uh, But if we look at economic history, if we just think about basic economics and and the nature of human creativity, I don't think this means permanent technological unemployment. I mean, I think it means disruption, which means that we need to prepare rather than panic. Okay, are there certain things that machines can never do, certain jobs that machines can't replace? I'll tell you why I was thinking about this. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about this about my own job. Hmm. And... uh, could you create a machine that would you put in certain algorithms about you want people to respond from a certain point of view and mm-hmm. you want them to use a certain amount of humor and you want them to use a certain amount of storytelling? And could uh, we have an automated 
talk show? I think we could have an automated talk show. I don't know that it would be very good. <laughs> and maybe machines would like to listen to it. I do think, I mean, already now, financial reports. So just simply reporting in print uh, where the stocks close. That really doesn't require a whole lot of mastery of prose or the English language. Uh, conversations, which go in nonlinear ways and which are non-deterministic, that's very hard. Now, could you get... Uh, a machine learning program that would, let, let's say, run all of the recorded episodes of your show from the very beginning until now that would sound sort of like Michael Medved. Yeah, we could get something like that. I think it would very quickly uh, get boring, and I think it'd be very easy for any live guest to actually freeze it up. And so I honestly think what you're doing is probably, if, if everything gets automated, this is going to be the one of the last things with, ironically enough, things like doing housekeeping and landscaping. These Some things are just really, really hard hard to automate, if not impossible. And and speaking of that, and again, this is close to home, Mm. uh, as you probably remember, people had pronounced that radio was going to disappear uh, with the advent of television in the early 50s. People were talking about that's the end of radio, Mm -hmm. no more radio. One of the things that strikes me is when Nixon and Kennedy debated in their first debate in the 1960 campaign, a third of the Americans who watched it, more than half of Americans watched that debate, mm-hmm. but a full third didn't watch it. They heard it on radio. Wow. Now, today, of course, TV is everywhere. How is it that people could be so wrong about survival of that technology? And does that have some impact, mm-hmm. for instance, on the fears that the job of driver, yes. of truck driver or Uber driver, anything else, that those jobs are going to go away. It does. I, I think what's actually going to happen is a weird kind of complicated mix. So economists predict that, well, okay, as, what, labor is an input. So you want to reduce the amount of labor or the input and increase the output. That's how you get economic growth. But what actually happens is that people, as more and more things are produced in an automated fashion, you can think of coffee being delivered and made in a a frequent flyer club where you can just push a button and you can get an Americano or a cappuccino. That's not putting Starbucks baristas out of business. In fact, if anything, as the sort of price for these things that becomes commoditized drops to zero, people start actually preferring the human touch for some things. At the moment, they're sort of luxury goods. It's a $5 latte, but I still want it done from a barista in very particular ways. And so with respect to driving, what I would expect is both things happen, is that more and more things are done by autonomous drivers. Different types of driving that aren't happening now because they're not economical will be taken over. And then there'll be other kind of specialized driving, wealthy people that actually want a person driving so that those won't disappear. But there'll be different kinds of jobs because people will be preferring a human driver than a machine driver for weird and kind of complicated reasons that are hard to reduce to economics. What about long haul truckers? Hmm. Uh, I mean, uh, and, and with the self-driving, mm-hmm. do you have some doubts about this massive public investment we're still doing in light rail, things like that? <laughs> Yes, that, that that's a, Seattle, a particular Seattle problem. No, um, they, yeah, did you not, see the paper this oh, morning, Jen? I didn't actually. I've been no, the class. paper this morning is that they're talking about trying to extend to Federal Way from oh, uh, Angle Lake. Oh okay, boy, this is our yeah. insane light rail system. But lots of people have insane light rail systems. Yes, and they're talking about. Is it twenty eight billion dollars? It's it's some I'm two point sure. eight billion. It's yeah, two point eight. It will end up twenty eight by the time. But I mean, this the, re, the this is the bitter reality is that already in Pittsburgh there is a fleet of Uber XC ninety Volvos driving around autonomously and doing it well. They start out on kind of these you know circular uh-huh. routes like light rail, like trains. It can only do one route. 
they're going to get more and more diverse. And long before the light rail system is fully built in Seattle and paid for, a lot of people will be driving these little cars to go that are more or less autonomous. Wow. Finally, an end to cutting edge 19th century technology (laughs) with the choo-choo train. Now, I've read the book, so let's flip over all the cards. Is there a human advantage? Is there something that human beings can do that can never, ever be replaced by even the smartest machines? Absolutely. It's not going to be many of the things we imagine. Uh, it's going to be the thing that makes this uniquely human. And we, we, we know this sort of intuitively that uh, whenever anything interesting happens, it comes as a surprise. Human beings produce things that could never have been predicted beforehand. In fact, every entrepreneurial invention comes this way. If we, if we, you know, if we could predict what's going to happen tomorrow in terms of innovation, we'd just build an algorithm for it. Uh, now, if you're a theist, if you at least believe human beings have something special about us, we're made, as I believe, we're made in the image of the creative God to be able to, to, to create, to use the things God has created to create new things. Um, then this is going to seem sort of natural and intuitive to you that, in fact, that's what makes us uniquely human. It's not just we are bodily creatures, of course, uh, but we're also we're mammals. We are, in fact, mammals. We share something, something with other animals, but we're not mere mammals. We're also creatures made of the dust of the earth and the breath of God. And so that's for me, that's both a theological conviction. It's also a prediction is that what actually happens is we hand over more and more of the things that can be done by animals or can be done by, by machines two machines, and then that leaves us to do more of the things that are uniquely human. And so that's actually the kind of core of my argument. Yeah, there are going to be a bunch of things that machines actually do better in terms of just a specialized job than we can possibly do. That doesn't leave us with nothing to do. That leaves us to focus on our comparative advantage, which is those things uh, that involve what essentially the traditional virtues of, of courage and learning from failure and altruism in which we act for the benefit of the other and we learn to cooperate and work together. And then preeminently the virtue that I call creative freedom, which is restraining ourselves in order to create things that we could not have created at the beginning and to become more than we were before. All the movies and all the fantasies and all science fiction stories all assume that robots are going to be more and more and more human. Mm -hmm. Is there a point at which no matter how sophisticated the designer and how elaborate the circuitry, a point to which robots cannot go in terms of the search for more human machine life. Yes, I I think absolutely. I mean, I think the word artificial intelligence actually captures the point. We can create machines that mimic uh, the external effects of intelligence. But if you think, okay, so what does it mean to actually be intelligent, to actually be a person? Well, what is it exactly? Well, it's having first-person perspective uh, and first-person subjective experience. It's the capacity to actually make choice. It's the, the capacity to know and to act for purposes. These are things that, and it's not only that the machines we're making are not are not going to reach this. Nothing that's happening in a computer is really anything like that. Um, I mean, could we create using biology something? That's a different question. But I would say there's no more reason to think computers as we make them are going to become conscious than that making a strong enough tractor is going to become an ox. I mean, these are the fact that you can make a tractor that will imitate actions of an animal doesn't mean it's going to somehow turn into it. And I think this is the sort of the fundamental philosophical mistake that too many strong AI advocates make is that they assume there's this continuum from computation to consciousness. And so you get a computer computing fast enough and powerfully enough, 
it just somehow passes over. I think it's extreme naivete and it's a sort of importation of bad philosophy into the subject. And so it starts out with an argument about strong AI in which uh, the claim Ray Kurzweil, the great transhumanist, does this, in which he argues that at some point machines just become conscious or if we can't prove that, they'll tell us they're conscious and we'll just have to accept it. And if you start talking about, you make philosophical arguments about first-person subjective experience and consciousness, then the terms get switched so that essentially they say, well, how do I know you're conscious? And so it's moved from computers will become conscious to, well, actually, you don't exist either, which is an interesting sort of argument. But this is this shows you how metaphysical assumptions end up sort of leading you in one way or the other. If you're basically a materialist and you think, well, there's nothing uh, between our ears, but physics and chemistry, then I think it's a perfectly natural assumption that, look, we're just machines, so why wouldn't we make machines that are every bit uh, as much as we are and perhaps more? Uh, on the other hand, if you think there's something else, uh, again, this is why you, you turn to philosophical arguments about subjective experience, about knowing the meaning of things, about working at the level of semantics rather than syntax, which is where the, the philosophers go. Um, what happens is the terms suddenly change. So everybody accepts that they actually exist and that other human beings exist exist. And when you can't finally reduce that to physics and chemistry, then the terms get changed. And now we deny our own existence. To me, that is the reduction to the absurd of materialism and strong AI. Any argument that entails that, well, ultimately, you don't exist or are reducible to physics and chemistry, which means you don't exist. You couldn't have a better reason than to reject an argument than one that entails you don't exist. Wait, I, I, I was participating, as I was telling you, uh, recently in Discovery Institute, mm -hmm. where we, we both um, are involved, mm. had has just launched the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence. Yes. And one of the things that was striking to me is they had this very distinguished panel with leading academics in, in physics and in neurosurgery, mm -hmm. uh, a very experienced neurosurgeon who's operated on the brain many times, and then designers, advanced designers of artificial intelligence the the one thing that even the most advanced neuroscience has been able to figure out with any reliability is the science of imagination yes. and feeling it's it's extraordinarily difficult to figure out even how the brain is operating to create that. No, absolutely. I mean, this is a wonderful book by David Galerinter a couple of years ago, Tides of Mind, in which he analyzes, I mean, we tend to think of emotion as a sort of a bad thing that we want to try to get rid of. And in fact, it's absolutely crucial to what we do and how we remember, how we confer meaning on memories and on things that we do. I mean, the truth of the matter is we don't understand how the brain of a fly works. We're talking about replicating human brain and human consciousness. We're not even replicating uh, whatever is happening inside the sort of cognitive capacities of, of tiny insects and things like that. So we're getting very much ahead of ourselves. But I do think that ultimately where, what you decide ahead of time is going to be dependent in part upon what you think human beings are and what your metaphysical assumptions are. On the other hand, we can both we can all make predictions about what we think are going what, what's going to happen and that's that's what i intend to do in this book is to say look if the materialist story is wrong uh this is what we should expect the um the sun over in great britain for the british for some reason are completely obsessed and fascinated with yeah. this idea of of sex robots mm -hmm. they they have featured sex robots on tv which are really very creepy looking and extremely extremely non-alluring, the opposite of alluring. So Dr. Johnson once said it is the antidote to desire, and that's kind <laughs> of it. But here's the headline on the sun uh, from 
on July 24th, so it's mm-hmm. right now. Silicon Lovers, Rise of Sex Robots, Blamed for Turning Japanese People into Endangered Species. As more and more men turn to randy, romping androids, is there any hope for the survival of human on human? Well, they say bonking. I can. I. I don't know if we can say bonking. We just did. Uh, Jay, uh, what do you think? Is is there such a thing as a randy romping android? No, absolutely not. I mean, at least at the moment, these are really expensive sex dolls that do some things kind of like humans. They're very expensive. I mean, there's an American company that's doing them, and it's the head is ten thousand dollars. If you want the whole head and body, it's about sixty thousand dollars. And so, I mean. You know, the, the reality is that this is uh, fairly well-off men playing with themselves well, and, with and, a toy. Okay, well, it's here, but the, the point is when you get to a Randy romping android, yes. Randy implies that this is a machine that is going to want pleasure. That's right. Can a machine feel pleasure? No, and certainly these can't. I mean, this is the thing. Even even the more speculative question, these, we know exactly what's happening with these things. Now, they are participating in machine learning, so they're going to gather data, alas, from the users and probably get slightly more realistic. Uh, but this is essentially a, a three-dimensional or really four-dimensional form of pornography. Insofar as you can rewire your brain by spending time with pornography, now men, mostly men, uh, will not only be doing that, whatever that does to your mind, they'll be embedding it in their muscle memory. So I really do think these things are widely used. I think that you could, at least in some cultures, end up with a cultural catastrophe. I do think that cultures that really do this um, honestly may end up not reproducing themselves. So there may be a selective disadvantage to cultures that use these things. If you were um, raising children, and you are, mm-hmm. uh, what what should kids expect? How should parents prepare their kids for some of the changes that uh, are going to impact our lives regarding artificial intelligence? I would say make them maximally flexible. So if you imagine in your own case, you might think, well, I went to college for four years and I've done more or less the same job for 40 years. That's going to be much harder to pull off because things are so disruptive things. I mean, you just think about the change from LPs when I was a very little kid, long playing records to now we don't even have a physical medium. We, we, we stream music. Um, and now just think about that and even think about it speeding up so that if you do something that's hyper specialized, your job, what you've trained for may be obsolete. And so I advise my children first be, do the basic things, do, uh, basic liberal arts where you become numerate and literate, uh, and articulate. Um, and then also confer on yourself a specialty of some sort. So maybe learn finance and accounting and philosophy, do both of those things. And that's what I advise anyone that's just graduating from high school and going to college to do something like that. Jay Richards, the author of The Human Advantage, The Future of American Work in an Age of Smart Machines. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming to you today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy, where they're preparing leaders for the public square. Application deadline for fall classes is June 15. It might be the right step for you or a recent college graduate in your life. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you enjoy your podcast, take a moment, tell a friend to subscribe today. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.